0: Hi, this is Ben Lolo back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our series in Paul's letter to the Philippians, The Fellowship of the Gospel with Dr. John Neufeld. So let's begin as we turn in our text to Philippians chapter three, verses one to three.
1: Let's read our text from Philippians chapter three, verses one to three. You know, when I think of the kind of life that Paul led, I compare it to mountain climbers climbing up an incredibly treacherous mountain upon which many others have died or those daredevil skydivers also called base jumpers. You know, base is an acronym that stands for those who jump off of B stands for buildings, the A for antennas, the S for spans of any kind, and the E for earth or cliffs. Often on the way down, they'll attempt to carve steep canyon walls going at an enormous pace. But the reality is, it's not safe. One out of every 60 people who do this sport will die in some accident. It's inherently dangerous. In the same way, when I think of Paul's life, I'm actually amazed he survived as long as he did. The very well-known passage from 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 29 is Paul's lifting of the curtain into his life to let us see the physical dangers he faced. When describing his experience as a missionary, he uses phrases like far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. He mentions the amount of floggings he received, and so we must imagine his back as a horrible tangle of scars. He mentions the one time he was stoned, and there I think he's referring to his experience in the city of Lystra, and on that occasion he was stoned and was clearly unconscious, and the crowds left him presuming him to be dead. And then he mentions the dangers he encountered when traveling from bandits who quickly and without conscience would kill an unsuspecting traveler. Then the constant threat of exposure, lack of food, unprotected from the elements, and the daily stressors that were taking a toll on his body. Of course, when he writes his letter to the Philippians, he is in Roman prison awaiting a capital trial before the emperor. Now, the reason I mention this is because I can't help but notice in the text we've just read that Paul uses the term safe. To write what I write is of no trouble, he says, and it is safe for you. And that little word safe, well, that's got me wondering, what in the world does this man know about safety? He's a daredevil for Jesus. He, by his own testimony, recorded in an address given to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 24, says, and I quote, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Now, let me get back to my base jumping example. If I was going to learn how to do base jumping, I know one thing with crystal clear certainty. I would not, let me say it again, I would not be trained by a man who said, I do not count my life as precious to myself. If that guy started talking about safety, I'm pretty sure I'd think he's the last guy in the world to consult on that topic. And yet here, in the short text we've just read, Paul says he's writing what he is writing because in his words, it is safe for you. How odd. And yet with a little second thought, we might see that Paul is not speaking about physical safety at all. He's already told us back in Philippians 1.29 that God has granted to us who are believers that we should suffer for the sake of Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 23, he has told us that it is his personal desire to depart and be with Christ. Just a little thought tells us that, that Paul is speaking about spiritual safety and not physical safety. I remember years ago meeting with a group of young men and women doing Christian work in some of the most dangerous parts of America's inner cities. One told me something I've never forgotten. He said that some of the most dangerous spiritual places in the world are found in what we might think of to be some of the safest places on earth, like middle-class suburbs that stress materialism as the highest good, And then he also said that some of the most dangerous places on earth inspire a faith that is altogether enduring. And so Paul is interested in helping this persecuted and faithful church in the city of Philippi to find a place of spiritual safety. And he does so in two ways. The first is by urging them on to joy, rejoicing, finding pleasure in the Lord. And the second is to warn them about those who would come to deceive them, false teachers who would, if listened to, divert their faith and render them compromised. See, up till now in our reading of Philippians, we might say that the great danger confronting both Paul and the Philippians is the danger from without. The pagan world is threatening the church. And in the midst of this danger, Paul is encouraging the believers to act in harmony, in unity with each other each one of them adopting the mind of Christ and considering others more significant than themselves. He wants them to present a unified front, not breaking ranks with each other. This will be a sign to the pagan world of their destruction, but of the salvation of believers. But at chapter 3, the scene changes dramatically. The danger is still there, but now the danger is greater than before. But how? Well, Paul knows that there is an even greater danger than the one that they have been fighting, and it is the danger from within. And that danger consists of two essential things. First, false teaching from teachers who masquerade as genuine believers. And secondly, a heart that is no longer passionate about Jesus. And according to Paul, this is the greatest danger confronting both him and the Philippians, and by extension, it is a greater danger than the one we face. Think about it. What are the greatest dangers to your faith, or even to the Christian faith in Canada or the Western world today? You know, someone will say, well, it's the secular environment in which we live or the new sexual ethic or the secular creation myth taught to our students or the denial of absolute truth or the myth that the Gnostic gospels like the gospel of Mary Magdalene should get portrayed as if they were historical in any sense and therefore confuse people. I mean, that kind of stuff. Yes, there are relentless sets of attacks that constantly bombard historic Christian truth, and it is absolutely essential that we be prepared to give an answer and be willing to take a stand in public. But as seriously as we must take this, that is not our greatest danger. So let's start at the beginning, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Now, it's very easy for us to skip verse 1 and move on to verse 2 because, really, that's where the action is. False teachers were a danger to the church. Paul calls them dogs. Wow. So, we want to know, who are they? And had they begun to teach and preach in Philippi? Are there applications for our day? And once we find the application, how are we to be trained to respond to this danger from within? And so the temptation becomes, let's just skip verse 1 and get to the action. But if we skip verse 1, we miss a critical theme Paul is trying to communicate. Notice he's telling the Philippians that the reason he keeps returning back to the command of finding joy in the Lord is because this is spiritually safe for them. If they are to win against false teachers from within, who masquerade as believers, they will need to find secure, firm, and a safe footing upon which they can engage in battle. Now, I ride a motorcycle, and and I know it's not safe. But I've also noticed that, that bikers regularly tell each other before they go out on a ride, they say, be safe out there. Actually, we mean something by that. Drive defensively. Position your bike so that you're visible to other motorists. Ride in lane-dominant position. Catch the eyes of oncoming traffic, especially when you're going through an intersection. Never ride in a car's blind spot, and so forth. Be safe. See, what we're saying is, pay heed to the lessons about motorcycle safety that you should know. Don't forget those lessons. Act upon them, and you're going to be safe. And in a sense, that's how Paul is communicating. But what are the principles that we should have learned about spiritual safety? You remember back in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul prayed for the Philippians with joy. Every time his mind wandered back to them, he's left uttering praise. And then in chapter 1, verse 18, he rejoices that Christ is proclaimed even while he's in prison and then anticipates an even greater joy at his trial. In chapter 2, verse 2, he wants the Philippians to complete his joy by expressing their unity. And in chapter 2, verse 17, he says that even if he is found guilty and sentenced to death, he will continue to rejoice, and so should they. That's where spiritual safety lies. It's safe for you. And by the way, what happens to a marriage when a husband stops rejoicing in his wife? What happens to a student when he or she no longer finds joy in his or her course of studies? What happens at work when colleagues stop finding joy in working together? The answer is, something fails. And what happens to Christians when we no longer rejoice?
0: Stay with me as we see the answer to that when we come back. As we begin to understand Paul's words of warning to the church, we're seeing his emphasis on the believer's spiritual safety. What an interesting picture that we don't often recognize when it comes to our faith journey. To be safe means that first we must continue to rejoice in the Lord and not become disgruntled. This is an important thing to recognize before we discover who these false teachers were. We'll find out more right after the break. Over the past months, I've been asked a few of the same questions a number of times. Typically they would be, how is Dr. Neufeld? And the answer is, great. He's working from home for the most part, but well and safe. Another question is, how is the ministry doing financially? Well, to that I say, God is good, he provides. Gracious partners across the country continue to give, and we're so appreciative. Times are uncertain and we must tighten our belts, so to speak, but we walk in confidence. So thank you for staying in touch. Thank you for supporting in prayer. And thank you to those, including our monthly partners, who continue to give regularly. And for those who are not able at this time, we understand. Please keep praying for the ministry. To learn more about the Bible teaching resources available through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada or to support the ministry with a financial gift today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: There is an old joke about a young boy who asked his father what it means when the minister says, and now in conclusion. The father answered, doesn't mean anything at all, son, nothing at all. You know, it might seem that way when in chapter 3, verse 1, begins with the word finally. And then Paul goes on for another two chapters. You know, but the word translated as finally can also be translated as moreover. In essence, Paul is using the word to say, this is what I've been leading up to in this book. I've been leading up to this phrase, rejoice in the Lord. You know, when we left off, we asked what happens to a Christian when his or her source of joy is no longer his delight in his Lord. Disobedience happens. Prayerlessness happens. Sharing the gospel with others is neglected. Reading the word, fellowshipping with believers, giving oneself in service, being generous in giving, all these things are affected, and we're in great spiritual danger, and we are easy pickings for false teachers. But how do we maintain our joy? In a world where grumbling and complaining are the norm, and often in our experiences, where unwanted pain and sadness so often creeps into our lives, the idea of constantly rejoicing seems like an impossible goal. But notice what Paul is communicating. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. Begin to believe that God orders all things for His glory and your long-term good, and begin to find your pleasure in Him and in His meticulously sovereign watch care for your life. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And by the way, For all of you who are trying to find God's will for your life and are frustrated and unhappy with your present circumstances, I hope you get the irony of this. The greatest battle you will ever have is not persecution or dangers from without. It's not even spiritual mediocrity. It is not even your failures and sins. No, no. Your greatest battle is with your heart so that you might no longer find Jesus to be a treasure chest of holy joy. For whose sake? You would gladly abandon all else. Do you want safety? Rejoice in the Lord. Now, having said that, and having insisted that this is the only place of safety in a hostile world, Paul next gives us the place of danger, confidence in the flesh. And this is where we come to Paul's warning about the dangers of false teaching. We're going to discover that false teaching will lead you to no longer find a light in the Lord. Instead, you'll begin to place your confidence, as Paul says it, in the flesh. Let's read verse 2 again. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, I want you to notice how different this verse is than back in chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. There, Paul said that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but in that section, he ends up by saying, nevertheless, Christ is being preached. Of course, Paul's not happy with wrong motives, but he's always happy with a public preaching of Christ. But here in chapter 3, the issue is not false motives. Here the issue is that a counterfeit gospel is being preached by people who appear to be Christian but are not. And Paul is not concerned about motives, but the content of what is taught. And if you believe what they teach, you're going to lose your place of safety. Well, first of all, who are they? And the answer is that for years now, Paul has been fighting off a group of people called Judaizers. These were a group of Jews who claimed to be Christians, but who insisted that when Gentiles came to Christ, they'd have to submit to three identity markers, which in the Old Testament distinguished the people who belonged to the covenant. Now, these three markers were, number one, keeping the Old Testament food laws, number two, strict observance of Sabbath in the Jewish way, and number three, all males had to be circumcised and so fulfill the covenant requirements God made with Abraham in Genesis 17. Now, we don't know if these false teachers had made it to Philippi. They, they probably hadn't, at least not yet, but Paul knew they were coming. And that's because wherever he planted churches, these guys would eventually show up. And they would take the believers through an Old Testament study and then argue that unless you're kosher, keeping the Jewish Sabbath, and are circumcised, you can't be saved. That was their gospel. Now, you might think that Paul would know that they're wrong, but it's really not that big of a deal. Not all believers agree on everything, and true, but some differences are minor. And some differences are fatal and dangerous. You know, I like to say that all truths of Scripture are held in one of three ways. One is in an open hand, meaning that people may disagree with us, but in the end, we will agree to disagree. The second are held in what we call a guarded hand, meaning that you may disagree, and in so doing, you're still a believer, but we're all concerned with the trajectory of where this belief system will lead you. And the third are truths held in a closed fist, meaning that we're going to fight for this, and to deny certain truths or to teach otherwise on them would mean you jettison your faith. Imagine you're given three soft drinks. Take your choice. One is a cola, one's a root beer, and one is cyanide. And what I mean to say is one represents a minor difference, and one represents the difference between life and death. Now, some of you will remember that this issue came up in Acts 15, and there the apostle wisely concludes that the Gentiles were not required to do these three things. They knew that a proper study of the Old Testament would reveal that there are some Old Testament commands that were intended only for Israel, but they are not intended for the present dispensation and for Gentiles. You know, I could say so much more, but time will not permit. Now, the apostles in Acts 15 also realized that you can't do evangelism when circumcision is a part of the game. I mean, I've said before, imagine a Billy Graham crusade in which an altar call is given with the announcement, men stand in this line because circumcisers are standing by with disinfectants and bandages. You know, that might be a very short altar call indeed. You see, if you demand the Gentiles do these three things, you can never take the saving news of Jesus to the world. The Judaizers must be stopped. And here in Philippians, Paul thinks something else is at stake. He thinks the theology of these men is so toxic, so utterly evil, that it bars the door to a true knowledge of the gospel. That's why he challenges it with such vigor. This is an incredible danger. So he heaps abuse on these men, dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Why? Because in his words, listening to these men will cause believers to put confidence in the flesh. Let's go to verse 3. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now that verse sounds almost identical to Romans 2.29 but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Paul knew that the ultimate problem with the Judaizers is that they would teach you to put your confidence for salvation in external religious rituals and not in internal transformation of the heart through the blood of Christ and by the Spirit of God. Let's see if I can put this as forcefully as possible. Whenever any of us rely on anything that is external— Whether those things are circumcision, or religious rituals, or partaking of communion, or going to church, or having a religious symbol around your neck, or a religious trinket in your pocket, you're being deceived, and that deception is a great evil. It seeks to devour you like an unclean, ravenous dog. Let me say it even more clearly. Technically, we're not even saved from our sin by faith. No, we're saved from our sin by Christ. Now, I say this because some people have this sense that the strength of their faith is that which transforms. No, no. If we are to understand faith accurately, the way it is described in the Bible, faith is no more and no less than confidence in Christ alone as our Savior. Whenever we add something to Christ, like a kosher diet, or visiting a confessional, or some form of legalism, even if we should say, well, unless I read my Bible every day, I can't be saved. This doctrine, or this way of thinking is destructive. It is most unsafe. Many a legalist has lost their soul because they trusted in something they did rather than in Christ. Learn to have no other confidence than Christ and his cross and learn to believe that only the power of the Spirit can change us from within. And tomorrow we'll see how Paul applied that to his life and how we can apply it to ours. So do you want to be spiritually safe? I hope you do, for many have lost their way. Learn to trust in Christ alone. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the gospel that you've given us. Thank you for its simplicity. Thank you also, O Lord God, that when false teachers come, you continually draw us back to the central piece. Christ died for us, and he alone is able to change us, making us acceptable in your presence and changing our heart to love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for Christ
0: alone. Our study today has really brought something home. The significance of knowing and living out the true saving gospel of Jesus Christ. To be careful not to give up our spiritual safety and learn to discern truth. And to recognize that we must never place our confidence in the flesh on what we presume wrongly we can accomplish for our salvation. It's not about what we do on the outside that gets us right with God. It's about what He alone has done to change us from within. I hope that this teaching has challenged you to consider where you may be putting your trust, and is it found in Christ alone? Be sure to continue to listen tomorrow for another insightful teaching from Philippians chapter 3 with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Last number of years, Back to the Bible Canada has been blessed to offer a unique Israel experience. A journey to the Holy Land under the teaching of Dr. John Neufeld, discovering firsthand locations across Israel so prominent in the Bible. Now's the time to plan ahead. In April of 2021, Back to the Bible Canada is offering our next Israel experience, and we want to invite you to attend plan to join an intimate group of brothers and sisters journeying across Israel under the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld. Experience inspirational events and activities that will include Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and very special musical guests, all hosted by the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.